It's the Task Management and Time Blocking Podcast, Episode 9. You're a productivity enthusiast who wants to experience one improvement after another. This kind of progress is it's nice. It's sweet. It's like dominoes falling. Or maybe it's like climbing from one level to the next in a challenging video game where you love the progress that you can make. It's very visual, very obvious. The reason you're looking for a solution is because you have a problem to fix. But once you know the problem, you're finding that it's hard to find the simple answers that you wanted. Proof? Well, just check out someone who is asking for help in an open forum like Reddit or Quora. They are focused on task management and they can't find simple answers. Someone posts a question, they want something they could actually use, they want responses. And then what do they get back on a forum like that? A ton of answers, it's like a flood. There's no way to make sense of the like a tsunami or a hurricane of opinions. Some of them actually contradict each other. And there are a bunch of people who would say, all you need to do is trying to make it seem as if the answer is very straightforward and that they have it. Heck, just the other day I came across a very big contradiction myself. I was really getting things done. And on pages 40 and 142 of the original book, David Allen strictly prohibits time blocking. But same book, Page 87, he says, I recommend that you create a block of time to initiate this process. Well, our job in this episode is to ask the question, why the discrepancies? Why aren't there simple answers? Why is task management so tricky and the challenges so big that they don't give themselves to one-shot solutions? Welcome to the Task Management and Time Blocking Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Nasby, the fastest way to done. Nasby is an all-in-one tool for effective task and project management for individual users and teams. It organizes your work with simplicity so that you can focus on getting stuff done. Nasby is free for up to five active projects and five people in a team, so there's no excuse to wait. And the premium plan with unlimited projects starts with only $19 a month. Set it up in three easy steps and watch your projects move forward. So thanks to Nasby for sponsoring this episode of the Task Management and Time Blocking Podcast. And I'm going to tell you, I, I'm not just reading a, a, a promo spot. I've used Nasby. I actually used them for about a month. I'm still using them, but started about a month and a half ago to interact with the folks from the company as they were sponsoring the Task Management and Time Blocking Summit. And it's the best software I've ever used to communicate task and project information back and forth mostly focused around the tasks that you need to do. Strongly recommend it. That's Nasby. Find out more, go to www.nasby.com.
Welcome back. And let's start with a story. Mark. So Mark read Getting Things Done by David Allen two years ago, and he's a real fan of the book. He tried to implement everything in it, but he found that some things work better than others, like most people. A few didn't work at all, but his lucky find helped him get through a tough period when he was promoted to project manager and his family welcomed its first baby. But now he needs another fix. He's moving across the country to take another promotion with a much bigger company. He's moving up. He'll be the vice president. He's wrapping things up on his current job and preparing for the second at the same time. Meanwhile, another child is on the way in a matter of weeks. This will be his second. Consequently, his desk looks like a mess and he feels overwhelmed doing exactly what he knows he shouldn't be doing, which is to use his memory to store or recall his tasks. He needs to make some changes. He knows that much, but he can't afford another week of getting five hours of sleep per night. So this is a bit urgent. He can't wait. He knows this is all related to the way he manages his tasks, but he yearns for the simple answers he found in GTD when he just started out. Having a single author tell him exactly what to do, what he needed to do, that worked for him. And he wants to find someone else to do the same for him again. Is he right to keep looking on Amazon, Quora, Reddit for book recommendations? Is that the best place to find the simple solutions he craves? And what if he can't find them? Then what? If this is your first time listening, I'd like to welcome you to the Task Management and Time Blocking Podcast and let you know that this is not unlike, this is not like all the podcasts. In these solo episodes, actually all the episodes that we do here, uh, we follow a problem-solving approach. So what do I mean by that? Well, we spend the first, first part of the episode defining the problem from many different angles. And the process that we use is one of, a, you may call it an inquiry, an open inquiry, into what exactly is the nature of this problem. That sets us up for a part two, where we explore different kinds of solutions and we tease the problem apart. Once, we've done, once we're done with the teasing and we start to see some solutions, sometimes for the first time in the conversation that we're actually having on air live, often happens with other people, but in this case, I'm, I'm all alone. Then we go into implementation and how do you implement what we're talking about. So let's dig into the problem. The problem of not being able to find simple solutions. So let's take a look at Mark. So Mark is suffering from what many of us have dealt with, which is a bit of a bait and switch. I mean, that's that strong language, but bait and switch is, you know, that, that's when you think something is going to be in a particular way or be a particular, in a particular format, only to discover after going down the road or after a little period of time that that's not really how it works, that your initial understanding was incorrect and that some bit of reality intrudes, tells you that you are wrong. 
So most people who start their improvement journeys, and it could be with a coach, a class, a book like GTD, whatever it might be, when they start the journey for the very first time, when they've gotten some assistance, they perhaps saw some problems and decided to implement some changes or to find solutions and implement them. Initially, they make great strides. Now, why? Well, you could call it beginner's luck. In the beginning, anything you do probably would make a difference as long as it makes sense. And if you're following any of the sources that I recommended before, chances are you're going to get good advice. So the good advice that you, you, you're offered works because we're from where you're coming. You're coming from having no information, no knowledge, having no understanding of what you've been doing. And it's probably been quite random and out of control. And you implement what someone tells you the way they tell you, and then it works. And you are amazed and you love it. Here's the bait and switch part. It goes away. And the reason it goes away is what this podcast is all about. Because it seems as if for someone like Mark that things just get more complicated than he wants them to be. Or that he ever thought they would be. You know, when he was implementing the, the simplest version of GTD, the parts he could understand and the parts that worked for him, together they worked. No, he probably stepped over the fact that David Allen said, implement all of it. Don't skip any, any parts. All of it is important. But the parts that he put in place worked. And he understood why they worked. Unfortunately, that doesn't continue. It doesn't continue that way for long. And after a while say the one or two year mark, something changes. And the initial advice he got, he thinks it stops working. The truth is, it is working. It's, as a matter of fact, it's worked so well, it's allowed him to move out to another place. Of course, he doesn't know that. He's just confused. And he wants another set of advice from either the same or a different guru but he wants something different. And the initial advice he got, he thinks it stops working. The truth is, it is working. It's, as a matter of fact, it's worked so well, it's allowed him to move out to another place. Of course, he doesn't know that. He's just confused. And he wants another set of advice from either the same or a different guru, but he wants something different. So as you're listening, I, I, I invite you to consider how much of Mark's story actually fits with yours. Because you don't want to leave this episode of Task Management and Time Blocking Podcast stuck kind of in the same place that you were before we actually started. So I'm going to in, invite you to engage in what I'm about to, the conversation we're about to have, the discussion, from the point of view of causing yourself a movement, a bit of a transformation where as we look into these questions, you allow the answers to come and as they come, to open up new possibilities for you, open up 
new options, new choices, so that you don't walk away being stuck doing exactly the same thing that you were doing before, thinking the same way and approaching this problem in the way that you were at the very beginning. Because the truth is, you know, it's frustrating when you put some time in and you try to get better only to, to, to find that your efforts failed and you didn't actually move the needle. It's not fun. It's like going to the gym over and over and over again. I read something the other day that said that if you're out to lose weight, going to the gym has a negligible effect. It's way more effective. I think the, 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 the causal factors were something like 95 to 5 in terms of what causes weight loss. We're going to the gym. Exercise causes 5 or less percent, and 95% is caused by what you eat. Of course, they have a relationship with each other. But you don't want that frustration of chasing you know, all that time in the gym, paying no attention to what you're eating, and then wondering why you hadn't, lose, you hadn't lost any weight. In like manner, we want to be chasing the right things when it comes to making task management improvements. And running after one author after another, trying to find the perfect set of answers, finding out that an author says things that are contradictory and at the same time says, do things exactly as I tell you to. Don't leave anything out. These are all recipes for frustration. So don't leave the, the, the half an hour or so that we're going to spend together without making some movement. And if you need to, I recommend you listen to this one over and over again. If you need to, further immerse yourself in the questions that we're going to be asking. So in a way, the point is to ask the questions. The point is not to get at some answers and say, aha, that's it. This is not one plus one equals two. This is also not, oh, I'm thirsty, let me drink some water. This is way, okay, <laughs> I'm getting, myself, getting ahead of myself here. But this isn't all of that. All right. So what people typically do when they feel this frustration is that they stop improving. They basically shrug their shoulders and say, well, I'm as good as I can get. Anything else is starting to look way more difficult than I expected because they start to uncover some information that tells them that the simple stuff worked, but it may not work any further. So they don't make any more attempts. They, they, they. The frustration leads them to basically not try. And why does not trying work? Well, not work, sorry. Why does that not work? Well, the, 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 the fact is we're dealing with more and we will deal with more tomorrow. More today, more tomorrow than we have dealt with in the past. So the problem of finding solutions doesn't go away. It only becomes more difficult. You know, it's a little bit like becoming really good at a sport, like Olympic level. It's harder to find improvements the better you get. It becomes impossible at some point to find that one coach who can coach you. You have to make a, take a completely different approach. And... If you do have that kind of, you hold on to that kind of impatience that we have at the beginning when we want to find solutions right away, 
if that persists, then and that expectation that we have immediate answers and questions and that we think that we should be able to find them, that only increases the sense of frustration. And if we think that because we're looking, we should be able to find answers that, you know, I have a question, there should be an answer and it should be, they should be close to each other in time and space. If we continue in task management with that expectation, then we're going to fail because like a professional sport, the distance between the question and the answer only increases as you become more skillful. It only gets wider and wider and harder to, to close. Not impossible, just harder. And today I'm going to invite you to accept that. You're here listening and you're unable to find simple solutions because that, that's what's happening. The easy, easy answers have all been used up. And the ones in your future are going to be not only not easy, but increasingly more difficult to find. So no one tells you this, unfortunately. I'm like telling you bad, I'm telling you like bad, bad news that you won't find easy answers. And I'll explain why the easy answers don't come further uh, later along, but the, the key to doing, to, to, before we even get to that is just hang in and endure. And in the past, you may have given up. Let's not have that happen this time. I'm telling you something that nobody usually tells beginners, which is that it starts off easy and that it gets hard. And you just need to keep asking questions, asking more questions, keeping questions open, repeatedly asking questions that you asked before, thought you had the answer, reopen the question, you're at a different phase, there will be different answers. It's very different from what you hear in the beginning where someone like a coach or someone who writes a book just says, you got problems, we got easy answers. And they're, they're close, problem and a question and answer are close to each other. And there's a lot of people on Reddit and on, on Quora and authors who really are just like time management is really simple it's easy all you need to do is and they specialize in giving really short answers stuff you can fit in a tweet but the truth is they're really talking to the beginners they're probably not talking to you so that's probably some of what you've seen in the past and as you look to the future i'm going to invite you not to give up and not to retire from the search Instead, you may want to change the search, the kind of search that you've been conducting. So if what I said before about finding or people giving short answers and that being a real problem and all you need to do is kind of advice, then you may be conditioned to search for shortcuts and tips and tricks and little bits and pieces. Do you have an app to recommend? All these different kinds of short questions won't get you anywhere once you get past a particular point in your task management. In other words, once you start to effectively 
use the advice that you've gotten before to manage a certain volume of tasks above a certain level. Now, you need more complex answers because the truth is the questions that you're asking, they may look like the questions that you asked, like Mark's case, two years ago, but they're actually very different. So if you persist by asking these questions and, and asking and really looking and inquiring and going deeper, and you could find that you get piece of an answer here, half an answer there, a temporary answer over here. You know, what does, what does Lewis Hamilton have to do each year? Each year he asks himself, he's won is it six, seven or eight Formula One titles. And each, each year I'm sure he asked himself, what do I need to do to win this year? And the answers that he got each year, I imagine are very different and they're not simple. And they're not the same answers that someone else on the Formula One circuit would get for him or herself. And is he going to ask the question this year and next year and the following year? Yeah. Because he knows it's the kind of question that doesn't have a final answer. There are bits of answers, temporary answers, hints at an answer. Matter of fact, there's a better way to describe these answers because when we think of answers, you know, we're taught to, the, taught to think of answers the way we think of them, the way that we were taught in school. One plus one, what's the answer? Quick, short, and there's only one. When you're thirsty, what do you do? Quick, short, and there's a few different answers. Drinking a liquid is probably the most important answer. But for us to make progress in this podcast, and for you to make progress beyond the level of being a beginner. You need to be okay and sort of be disciplined and be strong to ask questions that don't have final answers or final solutions. Because what you're, not look, what you're looking for is not the final answer. You're kind of like Lewis Hamilton. I'm going to say that you're looking for possibilities and that staying with the question opens up possibilities like options like choices like different future visions and you may stay with the question your whole career or your whole life and possibilities options and questions will keep opening up as long as you stay in the question with a certain kind of discipline and in that way, you can always keep making progress. All right, so let's, let's tackle the problem with a bit of research. Before we go on, let me tell you about another one of our, our sponsors, Predict. So Predict is a software that allows you to schedule your days to maximize flow and performance, not attendance. Because there's no point in working when your brain and your body are just not ready. Having two or three hours of profoundly focused work produces 30% better results than 10 hours of unfocused effort. And Predict is here to help you find those 90-minute blocks in your day based on what your body and your routines tell you to do. That's 
predict, P-R-D-I-K-T dot C-O. And welcome back. So we've laid out the problem and talked about why it persists and what it would be like if we don't solve that problem in the future, what our experience of it has been in the past. And we've landed on this idea of asking different kinds of questions. So before we get into the, the, the different kinds of questions you may ask, we need some research data because that affects the way in which we even think of the questions that we need to be asking. So the first place that people often start is that there is something going wrong with the advice that they've gotten. There's something wrong, I'm gonna break it down into two kinds of advice, which tend to be typical, from experts. Either experts in academia, or experts in the popular writing, like David Allen from Getting Things Done. So let's talk about the academics first, because you may have asked your question, well, maybe I need to go read the research. So fortunately, in perfect time-based productivity, I did that for you. <laughs> the book has over 240 academic citations, and I read over a thousand journals, papers, uh, books as well, but turns out that a lot of the academic research has taken place in schools of psychology. And long story short, those who study time management or task management got caught up in one particular facet called perceived control of time. So this is a, a, a manufactured variable. Uh, a, a what we call a psychological object, something that a researcher created based on a book from, uh, by Alan Lacan called How to Control Your Time and Your Life. So Therese McCann, Dr. Therese McCann, came up with the idea of controlling time and your perception of being able to control time being all important. And she wrote this paper in the early 1990s. So almost every paper maybe 75 to 80% of the ones I've read refer back to her paper because it was kind of the seminal, seminal, most cited, most, most popular paper uh, to have an influence on what came afterwards. Now, here's what's interesting about what her paper and the ones that came afterwards is that there was no clear definition of time management either then or in the future. And I'm not the one to say it. Uh, Laurie Helstein and Bridget Clysons also made the same point in their study, secondary studies of prior academic research. So that the definition of time management just wasn't there. Now, how could that have persisted for so long? And how could so many academics write papers on time management without having a definition? They didn't offer one and they didn't refer to one. It just kind of went ahead. Well, part of that is a problem of the field of time management or personal productivity in general, is that it crosses disciplines. If you know anything about academ academia, you may know that that which crosses disciplines is dangerous. No, it's not dangerous for us people in the real world who need these answers, which could only come from cross-disciplinary study, you know, time management is way more than just psychology. 
it has elements of business management, um, process improvement and re-engineering, industrial engineering, operations research, which happened to be my backgrounds, philosophy, plus a whole bunch of human resources, plus a whole training, and a whole bunch of others, right? Well, the problem is that time management falls right in the middle of a bunch of them. And you can't persist for long in the field without gaining expertise in multiple areas. But when you get a PhD, you do get it from one department. Now, you may define a cross-disciplinary PhD, and you may form a committee that may support you, that supports you in getting your PhD done. One research project. But to make progress in academia, you need to show a track record. And that track record needs to be recognized by typically one of the disciplines. And what happens often is that PhD researchers do their theses and in time management, and then they abandon the field. Why? Because progress comes from following a particular path, a particular hierarchy, a particular journey in one discipline. And it often means sticking to the well-worn paths that have preceded it. And following one of these well-worn paths means that you can make progress, which in academia means that you get published in the right journals, you get invited to present papers at the right conferences, you get to work with other top researchers in the field, and these and other kinds of goodies that happen that show progress only come when people can really understand what you're working and they understand it because you're in one area. Mix a couple of disciplines like physics, psychology, philosophy, and industrial engineering to get time management and you have a real problem. And what's happened is that there are very few researchers who decide to persist. So what does that mean for us here in the real world? There's no time management department, no conferences on time management, no academic conferences. There are no journals devoted to time management. And there's no standard body of knowledge. The way, for example, there is for project management, which is closer, a bit close to time management. But there's a body of knowledge for time manage for project management. There's a certification, and there are uh, academic schools and there's conferences, and it has all of the elements that would make project management a foundation discipline that has a future. Unfortunately, for time management, that has not existed and it hasn't happened, and the result is that academics have made almost no contribution to the thinking that we're doing out here in the real world about how to be better at task management. So I was shocked to find this when I did my book. and But I understood why, for example, David Allen wrote his book in 1991. Sorry, 2001, 20 years ago. And he had almost no references to any academic journals, thinkers, writers, whatsoever. So he's not, obviously, he's not a lazy person. But there was no, there is and there was 
very little contribution in terms of what these researchers are making to what people need to use every single day. So his book probably couldn't get published the way he wrote it back then. If you look at what's happened with other people's books, which follow in a similar realm where they're trying to bring forth some brand new ideas. If you look at a book, for example, by, by like Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. So he quoted a number of academic references, particularly those to do with the 10,000 hour rule, rule that he created in his book based on research done by Anders Ericsson, uh, uh, an academic. And so he's been taken to task ever since he wrote his book that he went too far. And he took what Anders Ericsson wrote and turned that into the 10,000 hour rule and made inferences and conclusions from that research that weren't warranted. In other words, he made some leaps of logic and he said some things that weren't totally supported. And I think it's a bit overblown, but I think it's a, a indicative of the kind of book standard that's required of people who write books nowadays. People want to know where's the research. David Allen, though, and Getting Things Done had no research. But being a defining book in the field at the time that it was published didn't need the research to have and make the difference that it had. Now, for us, though, looking back at the book and trying to find out where did these ideas come from? Where's the data that supports it? We're struck by its absence. And we noticed that really, in addition to being contradictory in parts, he also is just really telling you, here's what you should do. Here are the details. Do all of it. These are compulsory. Do it exactly as I describe it. And that's basically his advice. Do this exactly as I describe it. You may not understand why, and you may have doubts, but and you may not know how to implement it because I'm describing a whole host, tens of behaviors in great detail. I don't really tell you which ones to do first, second or third, but do it as I describe it and that's it. So he's running to, to, to issues where times have changed, people, knowledge has expanded, technology is now available that tell us, for example, that time blocking, as I mentioned, he prohibited time blocking in his book. His thinking on context is really outdated and Folks are, the, the, the prevailing thought is that, oh, we don't need context. We actually do, but that's a subject for another episode, but not the way he defined them. It needs, his work needs to be updated. But his thinking hasn't changed too much from the original 2001 um, book. So there are issues, and some of us would say, well, we can't find simple answers to our questions because the experts have not served us well. And there's an argument for that, okay? So let's say that's the first, the first complaint. The second point I'd make though is, yeah, but the experts did the best that they could and they're doing the best that they can right now. Where you should focus is not on the prescriptions that they give or fail to give. Matter of fact, I've hinted at this before that where you are 
is because of you. Now, you might say that it's your fault. I'm blaming you. But I'm here to say that the success that you had in the past in making improvements based on simple advice has led you to a more complex place. The simple advice Serena Williams got when she first started out from her dad, who had never played tennis, on how to be a better player, worked up until a point, and there's probably a reason that he's no longer coaching her, given where she's at, because it helped her to get to the next level where she needed a different approach. You're not much different. You now need to grasp and understand a few things about what you have, what you did, and understand why it plays into the fact that there are no, there are no more simple solutions. All right, to explain, let me describe a journey that you went on starting at about age eight. So you're fortunate. Someone taught you the concept of time and how to measure it using a clock. And as you got used to the idea of tracking time, by the way, we're always taught, no one teaches themselves how to do this, you started to develop the concept of doing tasks in the future. So the, the notion of a task, or what we call a time demand here at Two Time Labs and Schedule You, you started to create these internal commitments to do perform actions in the future. Because now the future started to look like a resource to you. You could actually delay the execution of tasks to a time that was more appropriate. So as you did this, you realized, oh, this actually works. I have too many things going on now, or I can't do the thing I want to do. No, I can't play in the playground because I'm not at the park. I want to play at the playground on Saturday and do my homework now, given that I'm at home. So you started to use the concept of time to arrange and commit yourself to do tasks in the future. And guess what? This thing worked. You were able to do your homework now and play at the park over the weekend. And voila. You came to realize that tasks were important. You started to develop rudimentary methods for managing your tasks. And that started to happen at around ages 12 or 13. By the time you got to 18, 20, you already had a full-blown system in place for managing your tasks. The tasks that you intended to complete in the future. Unfortunately, when I ask people in my classes, well, research says that you got to 18 and 20, whatever, 16 for some people, you already had routines, habits, practices, devices. Today, we would say apps for young folks. My time, we didn't have apps. We had paper and pencil. But you're using these elements in a particular way, calendars, lists. What did you put together? And when you ask folks, adults, these questions, they draw a blank because mostly they don't remember. So they forgot what they did to manage tasks up until that point. They could barely tell you if they have not done any kind of reflection, what they do today. Although obviously they are doing something because their life, 
they have kids, they have possessions, they are involved in projects, they have causes that they're a part of, they do work, they manage projects. Obviously, there's some task management going on for the vast majority of functional adults. It's not that they're doing nothing, it's just that they don't know what that thing is. And you ask them, well, do we, what did you do to put together this system? And having led this course, led, led my courses in different, different, for different age groups and co uh, for different, um, in different countries, different cultures of adults, I get blank looks. No one remembers what they did. If I ask a few leading questions and then do some coaching on how to look for critical incidents in which they change their behavior, then sometimes people can come up with different things. But for the most part, they can't remember. The other consequence of their lack of memory is that what they put together, given that it's been forgotten, has been frozen in time. And what got frozen in time was something that was probably more complex than it needed to be. The complexity and the fact that they've forgotten it meant that once it got frozen in time, it couldn't be improved. So not until folks become a beginner all over again and either read that book, take that course, hire that coach, and then start learning. Between that point and the point where they forgot, everything stays the same. And the bad news is, is that it's complex. Because anyone who sits down to create something that's as important as task management, a task management system, without any guidelines and involves so many moving parts, ends up creating something that is uneven. And I've led courses to hundreds of people who share their data with me to say that here's what their current system looks like. And sure enough, they're uneven. When you're doing something for yourself without guidance, you tend to make, it tends to come out complicated, uneven, not looking like anyone else's. And then if you forget about it for a long period of time, it's, it's even, even more reason for it not to, not to make sense and to be simple. So here you are looking for simple solutions. On top of something that's pretty complex. Already pretty complex. Huh. So the third part. So with the first part, we talked about the experts. Second part, we talked about, I said, it, it, you're the cause of it. I beg you not to say that I'm blaming you, but you're the cause. The good answer, the, the, the good news is that it's, it's actually up to you. The answer, the ultimate answer is up to you. And here's some help. So this is a bit of the big, the big, the, the help that you would need at that at this stage. It's not all the help, because once again, I invite you to be in this game of asking for solutions forever, for as long as you have a career, perhaps as long as maybe as you live. But here's some help, and it comes from some unusual places. So the first bit of help comes from a psychologist by the name of Kurt Danziger. And he talked about psychological objects. And he said, psychological objects are different from physical objects. 
A broken heart is not the same as a broken leg. I've added on the fact that digital objects are also different. So there's three kinds of objects that we use in task management, psychological, physical, and digital. So what are some examples? Well, psychological objects, prime example is a task. Time is also a, a psychological object. Time management is a psychological object as well. Physical object, well, this shirt is obviously a physical object. This ring is a physical object. My hand is a physical object. They're all tangible. And they're all subject to the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, all of which have to do with the tangible movement of objects, large and small. And then thirdly, there are digital objects. Like if you're watching this on YouTube, you're observing a digital object. You may be viewing it through a physical object, and you may be hearing me talk about psychological objects, but you are observing a digital object, which is a video on YouTube. So the problem that researchers make is that they don't distinguish between these objects primarily the first two. And psychologists in particular make the mistake of studying psychology the way you would study physical objects. So I'm a researcher and I've taught research statistics at the graduate level. And if you study statistics, you know this is a very difficult subject to, to master, actually to learn for the first time. It's very difficult also. But part of the problem that researchers fall into who try to research time management is they try to do research on psychological objects in the same way that you do physical objects. And Danziger said that you make a grave mistake when you do that and you end up with a bunch of nonsense basically. Now this has shown up recently because research done on psychological objects is difficult to replicate if the circumstances are somewhat different. Like if you change the cultural circumstances or you allow a hundred years to lapse, a hundred years ago, a psychological object like melancholy was really important to people of that time. They understood what that meant and you could study it. Melancholy has no meaning in today's world. You may say it's kind of like this and it's kind of like that, it's kind of like the other. A term like mental health has a real meaning in today's world. It's a different psychological object and it's one that's way more pertinent to the world that we live in right now. So the way you study psychological objects is different. Physical objects, not as hard. Why? Why? Because a shirt a year ago is still a shirt today. A broken leg a million years ago is pretty much the same as a broken leg today. So when you're comparing physical objects and you're studying the differences, you can use a particular approach that you can't use when you're studying psychological objects. Remember that problem I mentioned of time management having no definition, according to the researchers? Huge problem as a psychological object. Okay, 
So believe it or not, this has everything to do with your finding simple solutions. You need to appreciate that when you're studying and trying to find solutions that have a source in psychological objects, you need to approach very, very carefully because now the language becomes very important. And what someone says to you in a book or suggests to you is the easy answer to is a problem may very well not be. And they may not understand the difference between psychological objects and physical objects. So that's the one issue. The next is that, I think we've already mentioned this, that your way of managing tasks is unique. I don't think I mentioned that the task management system you assembled as a 10, 11, 12, 13, however old you were in your teens and preteens was absolutely unique to you. So this is a natural outgrowth. I, I mentioned the word uneven. Another way of saying it is unequal or unique or distinct, idiosyncratic, separate. The reason is that you weren't given any guidelines. So what you came up with was totally a function of your creativity. Good news is that you were super creative. Bad news is that you didn't have any guidelines. So what you came up with is unique. That means that the path that you take to improve your task management has got to be different than the next person, which explains something that you probably already know, which is that there are no one size fits all solutions when it comes to time and task management. Why not? Well, even though an author, even though GTD might say, follow these prescriptions, they're compulsory, they're mandatory, do it exactly as they're described. Those don't work once you get past the very beginning stage. This is an open secret that everyone who picks up GTD or any other system that mandates certain behaviors ends up applying it in a way that's unique to them. It's the right thing to do. It's not what an author may promote. An author may not say, apply it any way you want. They may not offer any hint as to how to customize it for your use. They may imply that if you make any deviation from the way I've said it here, don't expect the result. But the fact is, if the starting point for each of us is separate and different and unique, then someone who says to us, do A, B, and C, we all try A, B, and C. A works for you, C works for me, B works for the other guy. It does work in the beginning. So I'm not saying this doesn't work at the start, but once you get up to that next level, you can't go any further using that approach. So the way to get further along is to enter an inquiry into what is it that I made up in the first place? What's the system that I created as a teenager that I've forgotten that I created? How can I figure out and characterize the task management methods, the habits, practices, apps, devices that I'm using now? You don't need to know where it came from. Like when I was 19, I was late for a class and I failed it. And from then on, you don't need to do all of that. You just need to be able to 
understand the outcome, the system that you're using today. Where it comes from is interesting, but not essential at this point. So what are you using today and how can you understand it? Well, that's the reason that we came up with the ETAPS process. And ETAPS, very simple. E stands for evaluate, where you have to diagnose your current system accurately. And we recommend that you do that. And I'll mention some different methods in the show notes is that you evaluate yourself against best practices. Basically, measure where you are in a number of practices against best in class, as we know it to exist in our world today. And that way you can build a profile of strong here, not strong here. Never even heard of that one. If you've ever heard of the NFL combine, I believe there's one for baseball as well, and maybe soccer even has, and ice hockey, basketball. I think they all have combines. But anyway, what these are are post-college testing grounds, where if you're a high-performing athlete, you've done well in college, and you want to enter the professional leagues, you go to a combine. And at the combine, they evaluate your skills in a number of different discrete, very, very detailed measures or, or areas, practices. So they'll, how well you are, how well you throw the ball, for example. It's something they might measure in multiple ways and stick it into a database. So then the scouts, after you've been to the combine, they look at your data and they say, okay, well, he's the kind of guy who is good at this. He's not so good at that. It's an in-depth diagnosis. I wish we had that kind of in-depth diagnosis for task management, an activity that every adult human being engages in as long as they're of sound mind. No, we're not so lucky. The second step, once you've done the evaluation, is to set some targets. In other words, to set some new standards. Now that you can see where you're strong and you're weak, you can see, okay, well, this should be at this level. And that could be at that level. So you get an idea of where you want to end up. Then the third step, P, is to plan, which is to create a roadmap of steps from where you are today to where you'd like to be and the date by when you'd like to get there. Much better to be conservative and steady and slow than to say, yes, I want to be an expert, world-class expert by the end of next month. And then the fourth step is S, which stands for to support, which means to craft a series of helpful aids, um, that help you to make the changes that you want to make in your plan easy to implement. So that could be hiring a coach, finding an accountability partner, um, crafting <clears throat> feedback opportunities, rewards, meeting with other people who are on a similar track. So the ETAPS process is where I'm going to leave you with today. And different ways to execute it. There are at least three that we've come up with here at Two Time Labs. One is to read my book. It's probably the longest. The second is to take the rapid assessment program. And that allows you in the space of about 20 minutes or half an hour to complete a profile. To take that very first step, the E step. And then do the others with the support of, of uh, other people who have also done that program. And then the third is to take the new habits program, the new habits training. And that's a live training that I do online. And um, 
in that training, I coach you through completing your own self-evaluation for the first time. Okay? So the bottom line is that there are no simple solutions. And that's not bad because we're not trying to solve a simple a problem thrown off by a simple system. You already created something complex. There are no simple solutions to it because it's already complex. It's already unique. You've forgotten almost all of it. And nobody taught you how to make it in the first place. So you didn't have good guidelines. So you ended up with something uneven. So the complexity, or in other words, the lack of simple solutions is, re is a reasonable assumption, a reasonable conclusion, given the complexity of the thing that you are dealing with or the thing that you have already made. In other words, bottom line is you can't escape a solution, a situation that you're already in. As a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old, you already set the course for the, the, the attempts you're making today to do task management. The only way to account for the complexity that you created is to start with it. Not to ignore it, but to embrace it and use it as your launching pad for the next level of improvement. So to, I recommend that to implement, you use one of the three approaches that I mentioned. If you find another one that exists in the world, I'd love to know about, I just don't know of any, but the three that I'm suggesting all allow for practical improvements. They all use essentially the same approach, similar approach of doing that evaluation first is all important when you're talking about improving something that's already complex that you don't have a lot of insight into you don't never characterize never got any help in creating see this is not like trying to learn advanced geometry for example so someone has defined the field of advanced geometry i can only use those words because i remember none of what i learned and when you learn geometry for the very first time it's brand new You've not been thinking about this. You don't have geometric um, problem-solving abilities that you've already developed. You're coming at this cold for the, for the very most part. As a brand new discipline, there is a way to learn using something that's brand new. It's called a ped pedagogical approach. And there you have a teacher who is the expert and they tell you what to do and you're being you're learning the field for the very first time and it's completely brand new to you the world of task management is very different because by the time you pick up that first book hire the coach take the class long before that somewhere around the age of 18 or 17 something was is already there and you've already been using it so the pedagogical approach of teaching someone something from as if they don't know anything doesn't work for very long. Instead, I'll throw a fancy word at you, you know, agrogogical approach, which is how you teach someone who already has expertise in an area. We're actually teaching you a hutagogical approach where you're learning that you need to be the person who takes yourself through 
your own learning. In other words, you need to self-coach yourself. Very similar to what Tom Brady, Lewis Hamilton again, Serena Williams do. They've gone past the level where they rely on a single coach and they're following a hutagogical approach. So I invite you to step up to this particular challenge. Keep asking the questions that open up new answers, new possibilities. Don't stop when you've gotten to any particular answer, believing that now you've arrived, that these answers will yield progress, but you've got to stay in the question long enough for new options and new choices to open up to you. That's how you make progress. So keep listening. There's more coming up here on the podcast. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our next episode. Keep listening. Here's a clip from our next episode. Or, but Trevor, uh, have you seen this problem? Yes, I mean, I would say the problem exists in um, at least two different forms. You're, you're, the way you were just talking about it is the problem with um, explicit estimates, which is a problem of estimation is I'm not good at estimating things. But there's also, I think, the problem of implicit estimates, which is when we look at our task list, and think we can get way more done than we actually can. In that case, we're not necessarily actually estimating, doing any estimation on time. We just look at the list and have this kind of gut feeling like, yeah, I can get all that done. That's our next episode with Trevor Lorbeer. And if you wanna leave a comment about this episode or any aspect of the work that we're doing here at the Task Management and Time Blocking Podcast, you can go over to www.replytofrancis.info and send me either a message uh, by text or send me a voice message, a voice note. And as you probably know, we have a couple of places that you can interact with other people, talk about this episode. One is at the community, mightytaskers.scheduleu.org, and you'll see the link in the show notes. And the other, of course, is our upcoming Task Management and Time Blocking Summit coming up in March. Two outstanding opportunities to interact with other people about the ideas that you've heard on this podcast or any of our episodes that are coming up. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing, I invite you to click on the Patreon link below to make a donation. And please don't forget to like our show and recommend it to others on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, or whatever podcast, app, or service you're using. This is Francis Wade. I'm signing out. I hope to see you on a future episode and until then, take care and all the best. See you later.